The Torah content from now through Pesach has been sponsored by the Kofsky family in loving memory of Adira, who loved big ideas and asking big questions. Hello, I'm Rabbi Matt Schneeweiss, and this is the Stoke Jew Podcast, where we explore the relationship between Judaism and Stoicism. Today, I'd like to reflect on an experiment that I have recently done, which I call the coffee replacement experiment. So let me give you a little bit of background. The experiment was prompted mostly by the problems with sleep that I have suffered from for the last, uh, I'd say, two and a half years, really since the pandemic. Is that two and a half years? I can't keep track anymore. Uh, Listeners to my podcast will be familiar with these problems. Basically, I, thank God, don't have a problem falling asleep, but the two problems I have are either repeated wake-ups throughout the night or waking up much earlier than I intend to and then not being able to go to sleep again. So, I've tried various things, and I have uh, I've had my aura ring now for uh, eleven months. Uh, aura ring is the uh, the sleep metric device, and and regardless of how accurate you hold that it is, it at least gives me consistent data. In other words, I'll be able to see if there are changes uh, in my movement, in my my wake up times, my sleep times, uh, etc. Throughout the night, my heart rate. So it is a it is definitely useful for that, even if it doesn't measure up to the standards of sleep lab equipment. So I read over Sukkot this book called "This Is Your Mind on Plants" by Michael Pollan. The book examines three different plant drugs: opium, caffeine, and mescaline. And I was intrigued because in the section on caffeine, he does an experiment where he gives up caffeine for three months. Now, the reason why he does this is this seems to be his method. He wrote a book called uh, How to Change Your Mind, where he talks about uh, other substances. And in each chapter, then he partakes of the substance that he is researching and writing about uh, and then writes about his findings. So with caffeine, he says in this book, he says uh, that the only way to really study caffeine would be to get off of caffeine because he he was a regular caffeine user. And he says, the idea here is that you can't possibly describe the vehicle you're driving without first stopping, getting out and taking a good look at the thing from the outside. Now, I have, uh, let me just tell you a brief uh, summary of my history with caffeine. So growing up as a kid, I barely had any caffeine. I did not like soda. Maybe I would have a soda, you know, at a friend's birthday party when there was no water to drink, (laughs) but I did not drink soda growing up, nor did I drink coffee or any other caffeinated beverage. I started drinking coffee when I first came to yeshiva when I was 18. And I don't even remember if I had it every morning. I think it was probably instant coffee with a lot of creamer. And it probably started off as an occasional thing. And then eventually I progressed to having it uh, every morning. And then eventually I progressed to actually having real coffee uh, to the point where I would, uh, you know, grind my own beans and brew my coffee every morning and French press and or, you know, I've I've gone in and out of different types of coffee brewing techniques, Uh, French press, drip, filter, uh, um, Chemex, uh, all sorts of things. And, uh, I, my most recent coffee routine, oh, and I've basically had caffeine (laughs) pretty much every day since the, uh, since, since that, I guess, second year of yeshiva probably. And, uh, even on fast days, uh, I don't remember when I first, uh, was informed of the sock that, that, uh, that my Kozak, uh, uh, holds by, which is that you can have a caffeine pill, without water on on uh, on fast days. 
And uh, originally that Pesach did not extend to Tisha B'Av or Yom HaKippurim, but then eventually it extended to Tisha B'Av. And then for Yom HaKippurim, then the Pesach was uh, that if the if the caffeine pill has no added, uh, no sugar in it, which a lot of these pills are coated with like a, some sort of, a, uh, I don't know if it's dextrose or something like that. Anyway, so for now, for the last, you know, very long time, I have had caffeine every day. Um, and uh, that has been great for fast days. But anyway, my my most recent caffeine practice is as follows, is that I will have, I really enjoy the, the ritual in the morning of drinking caffeine, uh, drinking coffee while I, while I read uh, before I start my day. So I will, I have a Mr. Coffee. I, I, uh, I, uh, <laughs> I basically, I broke my French press and never replaced it. So I have Mr. Coffee that is on a timer and I make uh, six cups, I put in six, five to six cups of water. Okay. Cups meaning like measuring cups, cups, which produces two mugs of coffee. And I put in 21 grams of ground coffee beans. Now, I don't know how much caffeine this actually is. You know, people say, oh, you drink six, you know, uh, uh, six like measuring cups worth of coffee. That's a lot. It's not really a lot in terms of the liquid. It's like a venti. Uh, and I think a venti in Starbucks has like 400 uh, milligrams of coffee of, of caffeine. I assume that this has either that amount or less. It's very hard to measure these things. But anyway, that's what I've been having for the last two years, et cetera, uh, uh, pretty much, um, you know, give or take. Okay, anyway, so there was one other time where I went off of all caffeine, and that was at the beginning of last year. What I decided to do was to, at that time, I was drinking uh, 30 grams of ground coffee uh, every morning. And what I did was each day... I replaced one gram of caffeinated coffee with one gram of decaf. So I went from uh, the ratio of 30 to zero to 29 to one to 28 to two, et cetera, and gradually weaned myself off of caffeinated coffee to the point where I was only having decaf. And, uh, and I remained on just decaf for, I think, two weeks. And then I decided to stop. Uh, and the reason I decided to stop, the way I described it at the time was it felt like the world was in grayscale, okay? And um, uh, that, that was my description. I, I, maybe I read it somewhere also. But then once I read this Michael Pollan book, he is such a gifted writer. And I want to read his description of what it was like when he went off of uh, caffeine. He, he says, uh, uh, so he's talking about the very beginning of his experiment. He says, on this morning, that lovely dispersal of the mental fog, that first, that first hit of caffeine ushers into consciousness never arrived. The fog settled over me and I and would not budge. It's not that I felt terrible. I never got a serious headache, but all day long I felt a certain muzziness, as if a veil had descended in the space between me and reality, a kind of filter that absorbed certain wavelengths of, uh, wavelengths of light and sound. I wrote in my notebook, consciousness feels less transparent than usual, as if the air is slightly thicker and seems to be slowing everything down, including perception. I feel like an unsharpened pencil. And then he goes on and he says, over the course of the next few days, I definitely began to feel better. The veil lifted, yet I was still not quite myself and neither quite was the world. By the end of the week, I had gotten to the point where I didn't think I could fairly blame caffeine and withdrawal, caffeine withdrawal for my mental state and disappointing output. And yet in this new normal, the world seemed duller to me. I seemed duller too. Mornings were the worst. I came to see how integral caffeine is to the daily work of knitting ourselves back together after the fraying of consciousness after during sleep. That reconsolidation of self the daily sharpening of the mental pencil took much longer than usual and never felt quite felt complete. I began to think of caffeine as an essential ingredient in the construction of an ego. Now that description resonated very, very well with me in terms of my experience last year when I went off of, of all caffeine except for the decaf. And that's why I went back on coffee because 
life was just more enjoyable that way. So this time around in the experiment, I decided to not give up all coffee. Oh, sorry, I decided to not give up all caffeine. I decided to give up coffee and to switch to replacements. So one of the replacements, the main replacement was matcha, which is a special type of green tea. I got mine from matcha.com uh, because they have uh, high quality matcha uh, and uh, it has much less caffeine than coffee. Uh, again, it's hard to measure the exact caffeine content in in this, but I would estimate that if I was if I was drinking 400 milligrams of caffeine every day during my coffee time, I'd say that with the matcha, I'm probably drinking 100 milligrams uh, each day. So it is a severe dip, but I'm not giving up caffeine altogether. And then I also supplemented. Uh, I also experimented with other beverages like uh, Creo Brew, which is a type of brewed cacao, and uh, uh, Chaffee, which is another type. Uh, and then I tried mud water, which involves mushroom, uh, like, a uh, like lion's mane and, and cordyceps and chaga and all this other stuff, uh, and, uh, which has a little bit of caffeine. So I've, I've been trying different things, but the main thing is that I'm, I'm severely reducing my, my caffeine intake by half or by two thirds. Uh, I, I don't exactly know. Okay. So what were the results? So the first, I'd say three days I did experience withdrawal and the withdrawal was not in the form of headaches, although I think I did get a headache once, it was really in terms of irritability and mood. And the most pronounced, uh, the, the the interesting thing about it was it I felt like I was in a bad mood, except when I was teaching or learning, which is nice to know. And then, but the time that really stood out to me was on the third day of of my experiment, my, my best friend came uh, to town and I hadn't seen him since he, he made Aliyah in the summer. And I was uh, feel until when when he was uh, when we were meeting up, it was so strange. Is I felt like grumpy or or even border, grumpy bordering on on sad as my mood, and it was strange because it was like side by side in my head. I felt the happiness of talking with him and spending time with him, but there was this like it was almost like having like an angry roommate that was just sitting by my side and and giving off bad vibes. That's kind of how I felt. So that was during the first three days. And then eventually things normalized and this became part of my routine. I would have two cups of matcha in the morning and uh, and the brewed cacao uh, usually later on in the morning and once in the afternoon that doesn't have any caffeine or have barely has any caffeine. And I went about my day and now this is day 30 of, uh, of that routine. And I think the first, uh, the first thing that I... So, so I wanted to, okay, so that was, wow, that was 10 minutes of going through the background. So I wanted to just go through a, a few reflections on this in light of Stoicism and Judaism. So the first reflection really is, stems from what I just said, which is realizing that my, I, I think we tend to think of moods, or at least I tend to think of moods as, as primarily cognitive, you know, that the mood is coming usually from the way that I am thinking about things. And I guess because I don't take any mind altering, I don't take any mind altering substances uh, with the, uh, I guess with the exception of, of drinking alcohol, then it was very strange to have my emotional state. So to, to recognize that my emotional state was so clearly dependent on, on a chemical. And that was a very, very weird thing. And what that did is it reinforced one of the classical teachings of Epictetus regarding what he calls impressions. 
uh, and we've read this many times, but uh, this is in Epictetus Discourses 218. Uh, he says, in the first place, do not allow yourself to be carried away by to be carried away by the intensity of your impression, meaning the impression, the 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 vision of reality that the that your imagination generates. He says, but say impression, wait for me a little. Let me see what you are and what you represent. Let me test you. Then afterwards, do not allow it to draw you on by picturing what may come next. For if you do, it will lead you to wherever it pleases. But rather, you should introduce some fair and noble impression to replace it and banish the base and sordid one. Now, this this in, in this experiment. The impression was clearly generated or affected by by the caffeine that I had been consuming, and that made it real to me that the impression was not reality. <laughs> you know that the impression was being generated by something going on in my brain and in my body. And I think that's a useful takeaway that I uh, that I have. I'm still mulling over that. The second thing has to do really more with with the phenomenon of of. I guess, desire, pleasure, and dependency or addiction. So if you look at the writings of the Stoics on on pleasure and on desire, the main thing that they really caution against is the addiction factor. So a few examples of this. In Seneca's Consolation to Helvia 11.4, he says, every want that springs, not from any need, but from vice, is of a like character. However much you pile up for it will not serve to end, but to advance desire. He who keeps himself within natural limits will not feel poverty. He who exceeds them will be pursued by poverty even amid the greatest wealth. Or in letter 39, he says, the measure of what is necessary is what is useful. But what standard can limit the superfluous? It is for this reason that men sink themselves in pleasures and then cannot do without them when once they have become accustomed to them. And it is for this reason that they are most wretched. They have reached, they've reached such a pass that what was once superfluous to them has become indispensable. And we actually encountered the same idea in my morning Mishlei Shir uh, about a little over a month ago in the first three verses of chapter 23 in the book of Proverbs. So the translation of this is when you sit to eat with a ruler, you should, you should surely understand what is before you. You should place a knife to your throat if you are a bal nefesh, which Sadigon translates as a uh, an appetitive person. Do not lust for his delicacies because it is lechem kazavim. So most of the commentators translate that as false bread or bread of falsehoods. Sadigon translates it as kazavim, he says, is uh, kazavim bilti tamiti, inconstant bread. Bread that's not constant. Kamo asheri lo yichzvu meimav adam kozev. Like uh, non-constant waters or... Uh, every man is inconsistent. So here's his interpretation of it. He says, "V'inyan parshazo." This is Sadigon in his commentary on Mishlei. V'inyan parshazo lahasir shelo lahargil es hanefesh lemash shelo yasmid. Is that a person should not accustom his soul to that which is not constant. Kegon mishihiz mino hamelach al shulchano. Like if if the king invites you to his table, al yarbim in hamachalim. Do not. Uh, indulge excessively in foods so you don't, you don't become used to this and then when you lack it then you'll seek it in an impermissible way or a non-natural way and same thing with all pleasures is you shouldn't persist in them uh, because they're not constant so this is a very good principle in general which is that that one of the the downsides of pleasures is that you become dependent on them, and then when they're not there, then it causes you pain. Uh, and 
even worse, like he says, it could cause you to seek it out in ways that are not natural or in ways that are are not permissible. And this is especially true of excess pleasures, uh, like Seneca was describing, that if you become addicted to something that is not something that you need, then usually that's going to be without limit and you'll continue, you'll pursue it and you'll, you'll need more and more and more. And that will exacerbate all these problems. And then you'll, you'll end up in a bad situation, whether because of the pain or whether because of the loss of resources or because of the consequences uh, or, or all of them. So that's the general stance towards dependencies on pleasures and, uh, and uh, addictions. Now, the interesting thing about caffeine is that at least as far as the current society is concerned, it does not seem like we are going to run out of caffeine. Okay, now I realize that mass global changes could result in cutting off the supply of coffee or what what, what have you, but realistically speaking, caffeine will always be available. And at least in terms of my own relationship to caffeine, it's not like the more I partake of it, then the more I'm going to need, right? It's not like I, I have, uh, you know, 21 grams of, uh, of ground coffee today. And the next day I'm going to have 25 and then it's going to keep going up and up and up. So it is interesting that, that even though caffeine is not something that's necessary, it is something that, and, and it is something that is addictive. It's not something that increases and, and, uh, and demands more and more. And therefore it's not subject to that, to that downside. Furthermore, and I know this is something that there's always new studies coming out, but uh, caffeine does not have the uh, does not seemingly does not have um, uh, detrimental effects. I mean, sleep is something that it does have a detrimental effect on, which is the reason why I, I decided to 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 try uh, limiting it. But in terms of the you know other areas, I mean, Michael Pollan wrote his book in in 2021, and he does a survey of of the literature and. Uh, and finds that uh, that it seems like the consensus is that there's no uh, there's no like terrible uh, health uh, consequences. And furthermore, it, it seems like there is ample research to to describe the benefits of it. So he just as an example, he says he says I found numerous studies conducted over the years reporting that caffeine improves performance on a range of cognitive measures of memory, focus, alertness, vigilance, attention, and learning. And he says interesting thing. He says an experiment done in the 1930s found that chess players on caffeine performed significantly better than players who abstained. In another study, caffeine users completed a variety of mental tasks more quickly, though they made more errors. As one paper put it in this in its title people on caffeine are quote faster but not smarter <laughs> in a 2014 experiment subjects given caffeine immediately after learning new material remembered it better than subjects who received a placebo so arguably there are benefits to caffeine as well again sleep is the is the one area where it seems like uh, across the board caffeine could be bad for sleep i think the fact that my own caffeine usage was limited to the morning i know caffeine does have a very long half-life uh which means that it's still in my system at night but uh, I would only have caffeine in the morning, usually at six, and I'd have my 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 two mugs of of coffee, and then I would not have caffeine for the rest of the day. So I think that some of the problems that other people have when they're on caffeine of having an afternoon cup of coffee or coffee after dinner, I'm not subject to those problems at least. So my point is that here we have a thing where I am dependent or addicted to caffeine, but it's not an addiction that has consequences again, or at least consequences that are dramatic. And it is not something that increases and it's something that is, uh, is constant in the sense that I can, I can, it's, it's available to me. It's not likely that I'm going to run out. 
So the question is, is there anything really bad about being addicted to something like that that does have uh, that does enhance the quality of my life? I mean, I also love coffee. I also enjoy it uh, again. And I know I can have decaf and it's not something that uh, that is essential. But, you know, I, I think that the uh, you know, I wonder what Shlomo Melch would say about an addiction to something of this nature where it's not going to bring about any bad consequences or increase the addiction. Uh, and, and it's realistically going to be available. I mean, I know that there are certain sanctimonious people who would, would, uh, would say, Oh, don't, uh, don't be addicted to anything. But those same people I guarantee are addicted to electricity and, and indoor plumbing and air conditioning and heat. Uh, and I don't think it'd be so quick to give up those. <laughs> In other words, we are addicted to many things, and I think if you're going to take the route of trying to break all addictions to all things that enhance the quality of your life, then uh, then you have some real uh, con- you're going to have some real you're going to face some real hypocrisy and consistency problems. So um, so I think caffeine is for me in the in the category of uh, of like having furniture in my house and uh, and wearing clothing that is uh, that is you know uh, of a certain level of uh, of uh, of craftsmanship, I guess. Okay. Anyway. Um, I wanted to also talk. Oh, I actually wanted to supplement this with something that is from in in relation to the Seneca excerpts. Uh, I recently reviewed the first half of Mortimer Adler's book, Desires, Right and Wrong, The Ethics of Enough. And he in the book basically makes a uh, develops an entire system of ethics based on Aristotle that is rooted in in objective reality. And uh, the way it's rooted in objective reality is it's based on needs. And he has a very interesting division here of of what he calls right desires. So he makes an argument that that there are needs and there are wants. And desiring what you need is always right desire. But desiring what, what you merely want can be divided into several categories. So he says, uh, and again, I'm really, really paraphrasing this. This is from my own notes. Uh, he says, wanting real goods, okay, which is what you need, is always right desire and is obligatory. So that would be, for example, wanting food, water, shelter, clothing, you know, biological needs and psychological and intellectual needs. How you measure that is a different question, but those are wanting real goods, wanting what you need. Okay, then he calls, uh, he has a second category called innocuous apparent goods, okay, which is things that you want but are innocuous, meaning that they are not harmful to you. So he says that is also right desire, but it is permissible instead of being obligatory. And then the last category is wanting noxious noxious apparent goods. He says that is wrong desire, and there are two types, wanting something that impedes our attainment of a real good or wanting something to a degree which impedes our attainment of a real good. So if you map out caffeine on the, uh, along these categories, so caffeine is definitely not something that is a need. It's not a natural need that's built into our nature, so it's not obligatory, uh, but it is uh, also not intrinsically noxious because unless you're drinking, unless you're dependent on caffeine in a way that impedes your 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 attainment of a real good. So, for example, let's say you drank uh, caffeine in a way that interfered with your ability to think or interfered with your ability to sleep, uh, then uh, so if you did that, then it would be a noxious apparent good. But if you are not partaking of caffeine to that extent, then it is an innocuous apparent good, which means that it is permissible. Uh, so I think that is a useful way to describe what my relationship with caffeine is, is it's an innocuous 
apparent good that is not obligatory for me to pursue, but is something that enhances my life and therefore is not and is not interfering with my life to my to my knowledge. Um, oh, I keep on forgetting. Okay, let me let me uh, let me just support that now with the results of the experiment. So, in terms of the aura ring data, then I uh, I have looked at the trends uh, over the last uh, you know I have the data for the last thirty days. And there's no measurable difference. Uh, you know, if anything, like it's not like I got more sleep or more deep sleep or more REM sleep or less disrupted sleep. Uh, either th there are some slight fluctuations. Either I've gotten slightly worse quality sleep or, or you know, on, on occasional nights, uh, somewhat better or somewhat worse. But the point is, is that there's no discernible difference. No, no As far as I can tell, no statistically significant uh, differences between my my reduced caffeine intake and my my prior caffeine intake and now i know that's 30 days i know it's just with the aura ring but uh again i'm i'm if, if i was looking for some sort of measurable change i haven't found it and experientially also uh i have not really found a major difference so it seems to me that 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 seeing as how i love coffee and how matcha is more expensive uh then i see no reason for me not to go back on coffee. I think what I am going to do is I'm going to try maintaining the same level of caffeine. So I'm going to try brewing the coffee with, with, uh, uh, with less coffee grounds and, uh, and then try to keep that at the level of my caffeine intake. We'll see if that happens. Uh, uh, and the last, I guess the last observation I had, which maybe you can tell <laughs> from my caffeinated voice is I did have coffee this morning. Uh, I felt, so this was an interesting thing. When I first started the experiment, I told myself I would do it for one week just to see what happens. And it was kind of, I kind of had to do it as a spontaneous thing, like pulling off the bandaid, uh, because I knew that if I planned it all out, then I might chicken out. So I, I told myself I would do it for one week. Secretly though, I knew I would probably do it for two weeks. But then after that, I left it open. And uh, I, I, I'm a big fan of two-week experiments, and I wanted to see if I could kind of like trick my psyche into doing it for two weeks and then make that the new norm. And I did succeed, is that once I got past two weeks, I said, okay, I might as well extend it to 30 days. And what I, and there were a couple times when I got bad sleeps that I thought to myself, oh, I really should break my streak and have uh, coffee today. And the thing that prevented me was the streak itself is no, you've, uh, you have gone this far. You should try to make it to 30 days, uh, and, uh, and not cheat. And this whole process of, of interacting with my psyche and setting up, like trying to fake it out and trying to set, you know, trick it from one week to two weeks and then two weeks to 30 days. And then, and then not wanting to break the streak gave me not new data, but just a new, uh, new data points into the way that my own psyche works that I think not breaking the streak is a big tool that I've used in, in, in habit forming. And I think it's a useful tool. And today my reason, the, the reason that I had for drinking coffee was because I didn't want this to continue indefinitely. And I didn't want to continue making, even though I'm totally fine with my matcha right now. And I have, I still have a supply of matcha that I'd like to use up. Uh, and I don't even know if I'm going to go back to coffee on a daily basis right now, but I wanted to to deliberately break the streak so that I wouldn't feel confined by that so that I can actually make a real decision uh, later on. So that's uh, that was my uh, my reflection on my 30 day coffee replacement experiment. Uh, I this was a little bit of a long episode, I realize. Uh, I hope that that others find this to be of some value. And uh, I know I didn't go into uh, look, believe me. 
<laughs> the topics of addiction and pleasure and desire are much, much deeper than what I presented here. Uh, I was tempted to go and like do a whole bunch of research and try to present, you know, Mishle's view on, on addiction and pleasure and, and the Stoics view. And I, again, I've been trying to work on this habit of not making the plans so grand for these episodes that I end up not making the episode. So I decided to just bite the bullet and just record what was on my mind uh, after just some cursory research, and that's what this episode was. I hope it was useful. And uh, yeah, I guess if you have any other thoughts on this, or if you've done your own experiments with caffeine, uh, especially if you have suffered from various forms of uh, insomnia, then uh, let me know what you think uh, or what your experience has been. Okay, that's it for today's episode. If you gained from what you've learned here today, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Rabbi Alternatively, if you'd like to make a direct contribution to the Rabbi Schneeweiss Torah Content Fund, my Venmo is at matt-schneeweiss, and my Zelle and PayPal are matt-schneeweiss.gmail.com. Even a small contribution goes a long way to covering the cost of my podcast and will provide me with the financial freedom to produce even more Torah content for you. If you would like to sponsor a day's or a week's worth of content, or if you are interested in enlisting my services as a teacher or tutor, you can reach me at rabbishnewasujima.com. Thank you to my listeners for listening. Thank you to my readers for reading. And thank you to my supporters for supporting my efforts to make Torah ideas available and accessible to everyone.